Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. This week, I'm in conversation with two astronomers about the growing number of artificial satellites orbiting Earth and how these objects are steadily degrading our ability to observe the cosmos. But first, a word from our sponsor. The Electrochemical Society, founded in 1902, encourages you to participate in the leading conference dedicated to electrochemistry and solid-state science. The Society is hosting their 245th ECS meeting in San Francisco, California, from May the 26th to the 30th, 2024. ECS events are the premier space for you to present your latest research, to network, and to advance the science of sustainability. ECS meetings and conferences welcome experts in academia, industry, and government to build connections, to advance fundamental research, and to inform applied sciences. Abstract submission is open until December 1st, 2023. Visit electrochem.org forward slash 245 to learn more and submit your abstract today. Astronomers are becoming increasingly concerned about the large numbers of satellites that are lighting up the night sky by reflecting sunlight to Earth. In 2022, the prototype communication satellite Blue Walker 3 was launched, and it's now the brightest commercial satellite ever, outshining almost every star in the sky. And to make matters worse, communication satellites like Blue Walker 3 broadcast microwave signals that interfere with radio astronomy. To talk about the threats to astronomy posed by satellites, I'm joined down the line by the astronomers Mike Peel and Jeremy Treglone-Reed. Mike is at Imperial College, and Jeremy joins us from Chile's University of Atacama. Hi, Mike and Jeremy. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hamish. Hi there, Hamish. So, Mike, c can you give us a, a description of Blue Walker 3? W what exactly is the satellite and, and what's its purpose? Yeah, so the um, Blue Walker 3 satellite is a prototype that was launched last year, as you said. It's, um, it starts off just as a small box, um, but then um, when it's in operational orbit, it unfolds a phased array, which is 64 square meters, uh, making it one of the largest communication satellites ever launched into space. Um, and the issue then is that this um, phased array surface is, is aimed mostly at communicating radio waves. So it's sort of communicating directly with your mobile phone rather than having to have any special device in your mobile phone to be able to use satellite internet. But that um, large phased array is also very reflective in the optical. Um, so that's why we've had concerns about it um, from optical astronomy side. And, and this isn't the first... Um communications satellites to be launched. But is it the fact that um, a, an array of these would be put up there, so there'll be lots of them, and they'll be, they'll be trying to get to mobile phones, so, so the signal that they're, that they're going to be cranking out is, is going to be pretty loud 
compared to other um, communication satellites. Is, is that right? It's because the um, mobile phones operate at lower frequency than uh, communication satellites like Starlink, which typically operate at about uh, 11 gigahertz, whereas mobile phones are down at a few gigahertz um, or even um, 900 megahertz or so. So that requires a much larger phased array to deal with those frequencies. Um, but also um, because the signals from mobile phones are much fainter, you need a bigger collecting area. So there's now over 5,000 Starlink satellites up there, which are also a concern in optical astronomy. But Blue Orca 3 far outshines them um, just because of the size of it, um, because it's so much larger than the other satellites. And Jeremy, why does it appear so bright in the sky? Um, I mean, I suppose it's very large, but d d does it have to be reflective? And, and what, what effect does this have on astronomy? Well, yes. So the reason why it has to be so reflective is because you're operating in orbit. So it's constantly in the rays of the sun. So you need to have material that reflects the thermal energy or the thermal heat to help keep it cool, to stop things over, the electronics overheating. Um, the reason it's say, so bright compared to, say, geo, ge, um, G, GPS satellites or geostationary satellites is because of the distance to the satellite. So with flux, it's an inverse square law. So you double the range or double the distance. It's now four times fainter. So go from geostationary orbit of, say, 30,000 kilometers to a few hundred kilometers, you're suddenly now almost 5,000 times closer. And so therefore, you're almost, you know, 5,000 times brighter just by simply the distance. And, and I've seen, you know, sort of time-lapse photographs of it zipping across the sky. And, and it is incredibly bright. I mean, is, is the problem that if you happen to be observing in that region at the time it crosses, it just blows out the, y your observations. You're, you're, you're essentially blinded by the, by the light. Basically, yes. Um, it heavily depends on the instrument you're using, um, how sensitive your detector is. If you say just looking at the night sky with, um, say, you know, a, a standard camera, then perhaps not so badly, unless you get this very big streak going through your nice photograph of your nebula. Um, however, when you start moving to the more um, sensitive equipment, such as the uh, cameras being um, used for the Vera Rubin Observatory or some of the more bigger telescopes like the ELT that's been built here in Chile and also the large Magellan telescopes, then yes, you're going to start having major issues where you start having oversaturation, bleeding effects, crosstalk, and yeah, it becomes a big mess. And Mike, um, I also mentioned the, uh, the negative effects on radio astronomy. Um, it, it, is that simply because we've got these radio dishes pointed up at the sky and, and these satellites are going to be blasting um, uh, information signals down to them? Uh, essentially, they're going to be very bright in, uh, in radio wavelengths. And, that, and that's going to be a problem as well. Yeah, there's a couple of effects there. One is um, there are protected radio astronomy bands, um, which are very narrow bands, which are very important for spectral um, observations in radio astronomy. And these satellites um, can broadcast very close to them. Uh, so we need to make sure that they're keeping those um, frequencies very clear um, because the signals are really bright. And radio astronomy deals with very, very faint signals all the time. And when you get satellites like these up there, they can be brighter than the sun at the frequencies they're transmitting at. Um, the other complication is there are radio quiet zones around the world. So areas um, like around Green Bank, where there's 
uh, defined radio quiet zone, you're not even allowed to use your mobile phone or anything there. Um, but that doesn't apply to um, satellites. So satellites can still broadcast um, over those areas. And that can ruin observations, which are trying to observe where normally mobile phones are operating. So you can't avoid the satellites anymore by going to, or the interference anymore by going to remote places. Um, and that can be mitigated because you can try to steer the telescope away, so steer the satellite away from broadcasting over the telescopes. Um, but that can be quite difficult when you've got side lobes of telescopes where you're sensitive to um, things coming in kind of from the side of a telescope as well. Um, so it can be very difficult to get very clean radio observations in those cases. And and Mike, I, I mean, I know this isn't isn't your speciality, but one one sort of thing that struck me about this is 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 the uplink. Uh, I mean, presumably our mobile phones are not going to be sending data to this satellite because the, I'm I'm guessing that that would require mobile phones to be much more powerful than they are now, which I suppose would also be a disaster for radio astronomers. So is, is this sort of like a, a broadcast-only system? Uh, no, this is designed to go two ways. Um, so unlike uh, so the latest iPhones, for example, have special chips in them, so you can communicate when there's emergencies um, and you really need a um, signal you don't have, otherwise have one. Um, but the idea of the Walker 3 is it doesn't need that. It can just be a normal mobile phone uh, broadcasting with very small power or the same normal level of power, but because it's got so much um, sensitivity on the satellite because of a bigger phased array, then it can pick up these fainter signals and it can broadcast back with sufficient power as well that your mobile phone can pick up that signal. So uh, I believe they've tested 5G connections in the last few weeks and have shown that it's working for that, which is great uh, for okay. them. Okay, so, so no danger at the moment of mobile phones becoming more powerful in terms of what they broadcast but um but maybe that's something for the future you, you you mentioned that there are these um bands these protected bands is the the sort of telecommunications technology sufficient to um to to protect those bands um or is there leakage um at the moment um it's something we don't know and something we need to observe to check so there are very strict rules from the ITU, which um, set out limits on how bright you can be in these bands, um, which um, companies do their best to follow. That's not always been the case. For example, the Iridium constellation already transmits in protected radio astronomy bands, um, and there's not much that can be done about that, unfortunately. So it's trying to make to work with the companies to make sure they um, respect these and try to minimize emission in them. Uh, the other problem is that uh, modern radio astronomy really observes at broad bands, so we don't just look at these very narrow bands. We have to look at the whole spectrum. And we try to remove interference as much as we can from that to get usable um, signals back. Because the broader your bandwidth, the more sensitive the observations you can make. And that means we're observing where we're not um, formally permitted to, we're not formally protected from. But if those bands are radio quiet anyway, then we can do that. And with the proliferation of satellites using more and more bandwidth, because every single satellite constellation coming out covers different frequency ranges. That's really narrowing down the frequencies we're able to observe at and might have longer term implications on that sensitivity. And I suppose we're, you know, the, these regulations are based on what we know now. I mean, it could be that in the future with better radio uh, telescopes, we discover signals in, in bands that we didn't know had signals. 
Um, and it looks possibly now that we won't be making those discoveries because it'll it'll just be lots of people talking on their mobile phones. It, we, we won't be able to see those frequencies. Is, is that a big worry of the community? I think that's always a worry in radio astronomy, has been for quite a long time. Um, there have been cases where interference gets confused with astronomical signals. For example, there was a type of um, radio object that was discovered in uh, Australia a few years back that after a closer investigation turned out to be the signals from a microwave. When you open the door to the microwave before it's finished, it gave off this type of emission that was um, being thought to be astronomy. And that can happen with all types of radio interference. So you do have to be very careful, um, particularly if you're looking for kind of the unknown, the unusual signals out there. It becomes a lot more difficult. I mean, I suppose that of particular difficulty would be SETI, the search for extraterrestrial uh, intelligence, because there you're looking for technological signals. Um, I mean, I suppose you, you might even be looking for mobile phone signals from uh, uh, from another uh, civilization on a distant planet. And I, I would imagine uh, finding a, a technological signal from outside of Earth amongst all of the various technological signals here on Earth will become much more difficult. It probably will, yes. Um, a, a common um, approach there is you try to observe two telescopes on the other side of the planet and any local interference you'll only see in one and not the other, so you can remove it. But if you start having more and more signals coming from space, then you might get correlated signals coming in which mimic um, things from space. So it's something that has to be very carefully thought about and understood. And, and Jeremy, M Mike mentioned having these um, specific bands where uh, the satellites aren't broadcasting as a way of uh, mitigating some of the effects of, uh, of the satellites. Um, are there any other physical or technological changes that could be made to, um, to lessen this problem? From the radio side, um, I wouldn't be able to say exactly because it's not my area of expertise. Um, from the optical side, yes. Um, there's multiple things from the actual satellite operators themselves um, using um, mitigation designs or strategies. For example, um, Starlink, uh, they first had um, DarkSat where they used like black coverings to try and reduce the reflectivity of the satellite. But while it worked slightly, I think it reduced, uh, compared to standard Starlink, it reduced it was 55% fainter, it started having overheating issues. As I said before, that's why they're so reflective. Um, then they then used experimental visors to try and block off parts of the satellite from actually having the rays of sun reaching them. And now I think they're now using um, brand mirrors or dielectric mirrors to help uh, to, you know, sort out the reflections. So there are steps that can potentially be taken, but they're all voluntary and they cost money. So we're going to hope that the operators are willing to spend this money and work with the astronomy community. Um, there are other things that we can do um, as astronomers. We can develop software to try and uh, remove the contaminations. But again, if it's oversaturated the image, there's nothing you can do. I mean, you know, if, you, if your pixel well is only, I don't know, say 100,000 ADU, and it's at 100,000, how much of that signals the satellite and how many of those photons are on your target. So it gets a lot harder when you go down that route. Um, there's also other things such as uh, 
uh, operation, um, orbital operations, basically by having the tilt of the satellite at a different angle when passing over major observatories. It could potentially re reflect less light towards the direction of the observatory. And also the orbital height. Having a lower orbital height means, yes, it's brighter, but it spends longer in Earth's shadow. So you don't actually see it because it's not reflecting the light. So there's lots of things that can be done. But again, most of it's all voluntary work. Hmm. And uh, I mean, I, I sort of picture these satellites that are whizzing through the sky. And I'm guessing that you you know exactly where they are at any given time. I mean, can you can you just switch off your telescope for the, you know, the, the second or two that the satellite moves through its its field of view? Or are, are there just so many satellites out there that you your, your telescope would always be off? You, you'd never be observing anything. Well, what we do is uh, we can use the public, publicly available two-line elements, which is basically a set of uh, orbital elements that tells us the position and velocity of the satellite at a particular moment in time. The problem is it doesn't contain any uncertainties in the measurements. So we only have a fixed point in time and space, and we can only propagate it. And there is uncertainty there. It's a bit like the weather. We can't give the likelihood function if the pressure changes and the, and the storm slightly shifts dire, um, direction of travel. We can't calculate that. Um, there are talks about installing secondary cameras or secondary small scopes on the big scopes that has a larger field of view that as soon as it detects a satellite entering, it switches everything down. For now, that might work. 5,000 Starlinks, as uh, Mike said earlier. But if you go through all the filings with the ITU and the FCC, then I think current estimates place over half a million, by, I think, by the end of the decade. That's, you might as well just switch your telescope off until, you know, after twilight and start your observations then, which can work for things like exoplanets and uh, uh, globular clusters, binary stars, and so on and so forth. But when you start looking, say, near-Earth objects or asteroids, when you want to look in the direction of the sun, so you need just before, during twilight, that's when the satellites are visible. And so that work's going to be most hampered. And Jeremy, you're, you're in the, the middle of the desert in Chile, and I'm guessing that there, unlike here in Bristol or in London where Mike is, you've got a fantastic view of the, of the sky. You can see the Milky Way, etc. Do you, I mean, when you stand out there, can you see these things whizzing around regularly? Yes. Uh, I mean, I just got back from um, spending two weeks at the European Southern Observatory in La Silla. Um, beautiful dark sky location. Um, you can still see, though, the night glow from the different mines and the diff and the major cities like La Serena. Um, and that's why we build our observatories in a um, remote location to get away from all the light from the cities and that. But these satellites are actually in the sky no matter where you are. So... The number of times I've been out and you see one bright light going across the sky, then there's another, then there's another. And yeah, it's you, you're starting to notice the effect now, especially in dark sky locations. Um, and obviously, urban areas, Bristol, Manchester, Morecambe, um, you tend to not see it as much because you've got the ambient light pollution anyway. But as you get bigger, brighter satellites like Blue Walker 3, you'll then start to notice it more. And... Um and Mike, uh, Jeremy mentioned that um, the, the satellite industry is sympathetic uh, to a certain extent. Would uh, I mean, are astronomers happy with with the relationship that you have with the the satellite inter industry at the moment? 
with regards to your your night skies concerns, or or could it be better? I think it's improving over time um, because when Starlink started launching back in 2019, it kind of came as a huge surprise uh, to astronomers that we, we didn't really know this was going to happen and we didn't know they were going to be so bright. Uh, so since then, there have been a series of conferences where we've been trying to talk through the issues and try to understand what's going on. And that's led to the creation of an, a new IAU centre, so the International Astronomical Union, a centre for the protection of the dark and quiet skies against uh, interference from satellite constellations or CPS for short. Um, and that is really aimed at trying to get astronomers together to talk about these issues. So I co-lead SATUB as part of that, which is trying to collate all of the observations of these satellites um, and try to understand all the different effects, what effects these mitigations have on the brightness. Um, and that's partly what's led to the uh, Blue Walker 3 paper. Um, as well as that, there are other hubs. So there's the policy hub that is looking at uh, engaging with um, governments, with the UN, um, with uh, uh, with COPUS and others like that to try to understand from the legal side of things, the pol policy and government side of things, what really works there, what makes sense. And there's also a community engagement hub, which is talking to um, Indigenous people um, and to the wider community about the um, effects that these satellites have across all the different areas, not just in astronomy, but um, cultural landscapes and things like that as well. And then there's also the Industry and Technology Hub, which is talking with companies directly and trying to bring to bridge the gap between uh, astronomers and industry to try to develop some of the kind of shared understanding and shared um, mitigations to try to um, improve these. Because we can't stop uh, satellites being launched. We can't stop constellations being launched. They serve very important purposes. Um, being able to communicate on a mobile phone when you're in the middle of nowhere and it's an emergency is clearly an important thing. Um, but we want to make sure that they don't have the worst effects on astronomy, um, which means trying to avoid radio telescope sites or um, mid minimize the optical brightness. And so far, there's been a good kind of back and forth about that, and we're kind of hopeful things are improving. Um, particularly nice has been Starlink um, developing this black um, reflector um, which is um, which we're still testing to see how well that works in practice, but it's aimed at diffusing the light coming from satellites so it goes in all directions rather than being reflected directly back to Earth. And they've made that available for other satellite companies to use at cost. So hopefully with future uh, generations of... Um, so AST plan to launch um, hundreds of um, satellites similar to Blue Walk 3 um, to have a global network of these. And we're hoping that they'll be using these mitigation techniques to make sure that satellites in future are not as bright as prototype. And I think there's been engagement there and enthusiasm there. So it's, it's an ongoing conversation. We're looking forward to seeing how that comes out in practice. I mean, if I could just add to that, um, basically, Blue Walker 3 on its own, not much of an issue. The International Space Station's brighter. One object, we can handle that. Or I hope we can handle that. Um, the Bluebird constellation, um, as Mike said, a few hundred. Again, perhaps not too much of an issue from the optical side. That means there will be two satellites visible above the horizon at any time. The issue is, is then another company says, oh, we like this idea, we're going to do our own. And then another company, another company, another company. And then 10 years down the line, you've now got 30, 40 companies, each with a couple of hundred bright objects in the sky. And because they're from, and these companies could be from different countries, so um, AST Space Mobile, the FCC, you could have a European company, a Chinese company, somewhere um, in Asia, say Singapore, they go to their own individual regulator. And the regulator says, yes, because you're the first one in our 
um, remit. So we're saying yes. And so you then get the international um, accumulation effect, as it were. Um, I mean, this is one of the things that we'll be doing it here and working here in Chile with the IUCPS, because Chile is one of those special countries, I would like to say, where the benefits and negatives are at their greatest. Uh, it, we've got quite a few rural communities, a um, lot of communities that don't actually have access to internet. So having these services is a great benefit to the country. But with all the big telescopes here, it's also a big negative impact. So it works well, it doesn't work. It's it's a mess. <laughs> I mean, I suppose there's a there's a parallel here, isn't there, with the, with the with the problem of space junk, and that's you know sort of bits of satellites and uh, that that are sort of left up into space and accumulating over time. Um, is space junk a problem for you? Um, do, does it also cause problems with um, with observing? Um, from my point of view, not really that much because uh, most of the bits that people are concerned about are the small um, small pieces or small um, material that's not easily track trackable on radar. Um, but because they're so small, the amount of light they reflect, it doesn't affect optical observations. The issue is just the cumulative effect. If you have millions, say then billions or trillions of these pieces, it will add to the nighttime glow, which means the sky background if you point to a black patch of sky uh, and just stare at it, you'll get what we call the sky background. Um, and really faint objects, um, high-Z galaxies, will be obscured by it. So we won't be able to pick out these faint, distant objects that allows us to see or begin start um, understanding the early origins of the universe. Uh, people say, well, that's fine. Uh, we've got JWST, just launched space telescopes. Well, we've got the Hubble Space Telescope, and that's been impacted by Starlinks, but it's in low Earth orbit. JWST is Lagrange 2, but that costs billions of dollars, and if it breaks, it's gone. We can't go and fix it. And if the debris level gets to a critical point in orbit, we'll get something called the Kessler Syndrome, and that will then basically mean that it'll be impossible for any more launches. So no satellites, no manned missions, no probes to Mars, no, nothing. <laughs> and we'll basically entomb ourselves in our own little cage in the universe. <laughs> well, I have to say that's a, a rather bleak uh, assessment, Jeremy. Are, are, is there any good news? I mean, do, do you think that, um, that uh, the satellite industry and governments and regulators and astronomers can get together? Or is it just going to be, become more and more difficult to make certain observations? I do believe that we can work together to solve this issue. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, the services that these operators are providing is a great benefit to um, humanity, uh, particularly in underdeveloped areas or, or parts of the world, you know, poorer parts of the world where they can't suddenly just build fiber cables two, three hundred kilometers out into the middle of nowhere. And that only can be a benefit for, for humanity. Um, but at the same time, we shouldn't just be launching things and just playing catch up. We need to be working with these companies saying, okay, you want to provide this services? Well, there's this potential negative impact. Let's work together to try and solve that so that way then your services don't have these negative impacts. So there is there is hope. Um, the IUCPS is uh, a very pivotal part of this by actually allowing astronomers and industry to work together to try and solve this. Jeremy and Mike have joined forces with astronomers from around the world to write a paper about the brightness of Blue Walker 3 and the negative effects that it will have on astronomy. 
It's published in the journal Nature, and it's called The High Optical Brightness of the Blue Walker 3 Satellite. Mike and Jeremy, thanks for coming on the podcast, and we wish you well in your campaign to mitigate the effects of satellites on astronomy. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you so much, yes. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast, which is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society. Thanks to Mike Peel and Jeremy Treglowen-Reed for joining me today. And as always, a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, do check out our monthly podcast series, which is called Physics World Stories. In each episode, host Andrew Glester and guests take an in-depth look at a wide range of issues facing the physics community. Recent episodes have looked at how physics can be used to create a fairer society, how gravitational waves permeate the universe, and the future of the computer industry beyond Moore's Law. You can find all episodes of the Stories podcast on the Physics World website and at your favorite podcast provider. The Electrochemical Society, founded in 1902, encourages you to participate in the leading conference dedicated to electrochemistry and solid-state science. The Society is hosting their 245th ECS meeting in San Francisco, California, from May the 26th to the 30th, 2024. ECS events are the premier space for you to present your latest research, to network, and to advance the science of sustainability. ECS meetings and conferences welcome experts in academia, industry, and government to build connections, to advance fundamental research, and to inform applied sciences. Abstract submission is open until December 1st, 2023. Visit electrochem.org forward slash 245 to learn more and submit your abstract today. Physics World.